and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and creatives and in this we look at all the subjects that are of interest to people, particularly those who love Tolkien. And today I'm joined by Lisa Kultras, who is the writer of a book called Tolkien's Theology of Beauty, Majesty, Splendor and Transcendence in Middle-earth. Lisa is a theologian and it's the first time, yes, as she's showing it there to us, uh, it's the first time we've had a theologian uh, on this podcast. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at the theological ideas underlying Tolkien's writing. So thank you so much, Lisa, for making time to come and talk to us on Mythmakers. Yes, thank you so, so much let's for start. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. We all of us come to Tolkien probably way before we have our sort of academic ideas in, in mind. What was your first uh, experience or exposure to Tolkien? Was it the books or was it the films? Which way around did you approach? Well, for me, it was actually partly family and partly the films. So I knew about Tolkien because my mom and my brother read it, loved it, talked about hobbits. Uh, I didn't have any understanding of what they were talking about. And then when the films came out, of course, I went and saw them. And uh, I, was, I was a teenager at the time fell in love with them, uh, saw the first first film, of course, and then I read all three of the books, um, or the volumes, I should say, of the book. Um, and that's that was my first exposure, and I started writing some fiction. Um, haven't really published any of it, but, um, you know, that's when I fell in love with literature, really, was, uh, was Tolkien. I think that's so brilliant that Tolkien, like just for me, that's exactly the same. My writing career was inspired by reading Tolkien and then wanting to do the same thing. You don't end, I haven't as a writer ended up doing the same thing, but it was that impetus to try and open the same doors and and create these big worlds that actually started. And I think lots of people, I'm sure most people listening to this have had that same impetus, which is, um, you know, it's just a testament to this, the sort of fascination of his world and its inspiration. But you then went on um, clearly to sort of follow an academic training in theology. But in that, you circle back to looking at Tolkien as a theologian. So how did that come about? And um, where does it fit in, in your studies? Is it something you went in knowing you're going to do? Or did you then um, sort of find it just bubbling up to the surface almost by uh, accident? Well, it did evolve over time. So I ended up studying um, in my undergraduate, I studied philosophy and uh, biblical studies and so and writing. So I did those three things, kind of a three pronged approach. And with studying philosophy, fell in love with this like analytical approach to, you know, meta narrative, uh, you know, these, these larger concepts and so on. And then when I went and did my master of theology, my approach was narrative theology. Well, how does narrative speak to these, you know, Christian ideas or these Christian philosophies, because when, when I would read Christian fiction, I didn't like it. I thought it was lame. And I, I know there's good fiction out there. I just, you know, I felt like it was very shallow or trite, or um, they would be trying so hard to tell an idea rather than just telling a, an excellent narrative. And so my thought was, well, how can narrative best communicate these uh, theological ideas in a way that isn't pushy or obnoxious um, or just preaching to the choir. 
And then when I went into my doctoral studies, um, I wanted to study specific authors who had done this well. How did they portray their Christian philosophy in a way that was not obnoxious or pushy or obvious? And I had a couple people in mind, but it was actually, um, I believe it was Michael Ward, the C.S. Lewis author. He um, he was my inspiration in many ways. He uh, instructed me to just do Tolkien. You know, there's enough there, and there's actually um, you know not a lot of theological writing about him. So focus on him. He's brilliant. He's the best one. You should go do him. And obviously he, you know, he was doing C.S. Lewis. And so he's like, go do Tolkien. And, uh, and so I had this, um, you know, inspired by uh, an article by Stephen Lawhead who talked about, um, you know, the good, the true and the beautiful and how this was portrayed in Tolkien and how he wanted to portray that in his novels. Uh, I was just captured by this idea of the good, the true and the beautiful because I had never actually encountered that because, you know, I wasn't Catholic. Um, you know, I came from a very, you know, Protestant Christian background, and we hadn't really talked about the good, the true, and the beautiful as a concept. So I was just in love with this idea. And so Michael Ward said, well, go to Balthazar, go read him. He's going to talk about this. And so that's how I brought in the theologian Balthazar, or von Balthazar, and used him as a parallel to Tolkien to interpret him. And it just developed from there. And then uh, Alistair McGrath, who was a theologian and a C.S. Lewis scholar, uh, took me under his wing as uh, his advisee for the thesis. And so it just developed from there and became what it is as the book. So so a lot of people listening to this would not have thought about Tolkien as a sort of theological uh, or a religious writer at all. So perhaps it might be worth having a little basic chat about how Tolkien sat in this way, his background, faith background, and how he saw Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um for example, Tolkien was a Catholic, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very devout Roman Catholic. Um, loved his faith. He loved the you know liturgy and the Eucharist, and that was the center of his life. And when he wrote Lord of the Rings, he did not have it in mind at all when he was writing it. But then when he went went through and revised it, he saw it everywhere as just permeating everything that he had written in, in Middle Earth. And and when he saw it, he did everything he could to remove any reference to it because he felt like if it's done right, it should be absorbed into the narrative and that it should be captured in the stories that are told and the symbolism that is there. And he had no problem with symbolism, but he did not want it to be an allegory of life. You know, it was not an allegory of the war. It was not an allegory of the atom bomb. It was just a beautiful story that he wrote to the best of his ability that would absorb his ideas and his beliefs about the world and then portray them through narrative and event and character. I think that's a really important point to make because there's a fear that if, if uh, I think for many people who are reading this without uh, a Christian faith or having their own faith background or no faith background, they wouldn't want to see him hived off as a Christian author. And I don't think Tolkien would either, would he? Because as you were saying, he he disliked, he said he disliked allegory, but he liked applicability. Mm-hmm. So you can apply what you see in his works to your understanding of faith or life or beauty or these things. But he says the power of that is in the reader's hands. Mm-hmm. Whereas in allegory, the power of the allegory is in the writer's hands and it sort of takes you down one channel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 
it's kind of everybody is welcome <laughs> in yeah. the world of Middle Earth, but he does want there to be that sense of his fundamental values, which is what he's writing from. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go more to your work now. Um, you have a particular view or a particular interest in this idea of transcendental beauty. Would you like to unpack that in sort of more simple terms as to, well, we probably all understand what beauty is, but what about this transcend, transcendental part of it? What are you getting at there? Mm. Um, yeah, the for Tolkien, you know, all, all of creation, I mean, this, of course, comes from, you know, the ancient uh, theological philosophy of, you know, Catholic theologians, that all of all of creation is made up of the good, the true, and the beautiful. That is, you know, ontologically part of everything. It is the the essence of all. And anything that is evil or deficient is just something that has kind of chipped away at that and and detracted from it. Um, and we all have this idea of you know what goodness is. Uh, you know, in, in a religious context, you know, goodness is you know morality and uh, and you know truth is you know, doctrine, but this idea of the beautiful is so often neglected because it is, it is so much more. It's the imagination. It is glory. It is grace. It is something that is so much more and permeates everything. Um, but the good and the true are really not fully themselves without something that is beautiful, without having this property of beauty. So you can be as moral and have all this moralism that you want, but it it falls flat on its face if, if it isn't beautiful, if it doesn't enrapture your heart and enrapture your spirit and your imagination. And so in this, uh, in this Christian worldview where God is the creator of all, it all comes from him, um, his character and his essence is uh, reflected in all that he has made. And so if God himself is beauty, um, you know, not in the sense of, uh, you know, he's a thing, but more that beauty itself is what it is because of God. And, and, you know, he is the ultimate beauty and the ultimate glory. So glory is the, the radiance, um, something that is greater than what we understand of as beauty in this world. And so, um, you know, glory would be God's beauty, or it would be his beauty reflected in creation. So you're looking out at this beautiful mountain range and you're just, your, your breath is taken away and you're, you're just enraptured by it. Well, what Tolkien's theology would say is that is a reflection of the glory of God because he's the creator who made it. And so anything that is beautiful about it is it comes from his being. It comes from who he is. And so in Tolkien's narrative, uh, you know, anything that is transcendent or uh, enrapturing of the imagination or moving, uh, that would be derived from something more than than just the material. He would say there is a spiritual world. And in the spiritual world, um, you know, the spiritual world is part of the physical world. Like they are together. They have to be integrated. And so anything that is um, glorious about the material world is deriving it from the spiritual world. And then, you know, it goes from there. Um, You know, this is creation, but God is the creator and it derives from him. So that's a very long roundabout explanation. (laughs) No, but he he does he sets it up in the Silmarillion, doesn't he, with the song at the beginning of um well the, the creation song, mm-hmm. which is in a way a summary of everything that's going to happen, mm-hmm. um with the darker themes woven in by Melkor, the sort of the satanic power mm-hmm. within it, but it's all held in that the entirety of the symphony that 
Iluvatar or the, the god is creating. So you get a sort of taste of that that's the that's the music playing underneath middle earth mm-hmm. um and you you need all the contrast to produce the beauty it's mm-hmm. not just playing one note right so uh, it'd be actually really interesting to look at examples of in the text you know examples of beauty because whereas in the silmarillion you've got the gods um the sort of demi the the step down from Ilu- Iluvatar, the sort of pantheon gods mm-hmm. who are very much present in the first age and and referred to and in the second age. By the third age, which is the time in which Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit is set, there is hardly any mention mm-hmm. of the gods, is there? They, they are completely pushed back out of, out of sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? And there is no sign of anybody worshipping um in any sense in in middle earth at that stage what do you think is tolkien's place within the world that's more familiar to most readers world what's the place for god and those concepts in uh lord of the rings and the hobbit well i think what he would say is you know the silmarillion is elf centered you know it's from the perspective of the elves and then lord of the rings and the hobbit are hobbit centered and so while they encounter you know, elves and humans, um, they very much see it from their own perspective of as hobbits. They, they um, you know, there is no special revelation, as Tolkien would say. There is no, um, you know, there is no understanding yet of um, of, a, of a god, of a coming savior. Like all of that is is on the peripheral. And so, in this world of natural theology, as he puts it, where you get a sense of truth through creation. Um, that would be the world of, of Lord of the Rings. But then you see, uh, you know, Galadriel making reference to Elbereth. Mm. And you see, and Elbereth, of course, is, um, uh, sorry, with B, what's her name? <laughs> um, it, you know, it's, it's the, the, the female uh, god of, uh, of, the, of um, Valinor. And, uh, and yet, what Tolkien would say is, well, they're not gods. That's just what humans see them as because they see this mm. power, this great power, and humans are prone to worship them. That is what he that what he would say. And that's probably what he did say, I think, in his letters, is that when humans encountered these, they no doubt thought they were gods and worshipped them. The elves saw them as these angelic guardians yeah, whom they had a relationship with and who, I mean, they could even intermarry with. Um, and so these were greater powers who were essentially spirit who could take on physical form, whereas the elves were essentially physical form who, um, of course, had the integration of spirit. So I think in Middle Earth, the reason you don't see a lot of that stuff, and you probably took it out if there was any of it in there to start with, um, it's because it's, you know, elf, or sorry, it's hobbit-centered, it's human-centered, and of course there's like a, a knowledge of the one that the noble men have. So like Aragorn would have knowledge of the one and Faramir would have knowledge of the one. And of course there's that moment where Faramir and all his men have that moment of silence and look toward the West. So th- there's this thought of like, is this a moment of prayer? But they are the noble men who are uh, educated in that sense. So they have knowledge of it from the elves um, ultimately historically. So that that's, what I would say, and of course, there's that that moment where Frodo um, he calls out to Elbereth uh, mm-hmm. when he's in Shelob's lair, 
So there is a, there are these like small moments where Tolkien weaves it in there very subtly where it's not obvious that he is um, in a sense praying to Elbereth in the sense that uh, you know Catholics would pray to the saints uh, for help and they would say you know please pray for me please help me um, please go to God and 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 request his assistance and so that I think is more the perspective of like what the elves would do or, or like this incantation that. Um, that Frodo, you know, Frodo has this moment of, of, uh, of calling out. So it's, it's much more subtle. And I think that's very much on purpose. And I think there's also a sense that Gandalf says there's a, and Galadriel too, there's a sense of providence working mm-hmm. in very the much. activities. Um, so there's that message that, you know, Bilbo was meant to find the ring and you were meant to mm-hmm. be the one to take it. You know, it's the idea that there is some sort of plan Mm-hmm. That means that they're the right people in the right place, um, which sort of has this sense of behind the scenes, there is some greater good that that is working for the hobbits, for their success. Yeah. Also, perhaps we could also unpack, unpack a little the idea of beauty itself, because, yes, um, there is a lot of discussion about how beautiful Galadriel is and how beautiful Arwen is in terms of classic Mm -hmm. feminine beauty though in a sort of extreme form because they're these lovely elves Mm -hmm. but I think it's not just that is it because there's another bit where um they refer they refer to Frodo after his uh when he's in the houses of healing in Elrond's in Elrond's uh sick bay (laughs) he Uh seems to spend a lot of time unfortunately in the equivalent hospital um but he's sort of gone partly there's a sense of light coming from inside him uh, and I th- and and Sam also looks at him later on and says that he's sort of beautiful, the sense of a beautiful soul. Mm-hmm. And we all, we do know that Frodo isn't classically beautiful. He's a fifty-year-old, sometimes slightly overweight Hobbit. Nobody says, "Gosh, he's a real stunner." Yeah. It's something else that's being referred to here, which is beauty. That is, I think, picking up your phrase, um, the radiance of God's glory, mm-hmm. the sense. And I'm sure that, I mean, there must be other characters. What other characters do you see that are beautiful in in that way? Yeah, I mean, the 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 beauty of the soul is is certainly um, the driving force of physical beauty in Tolkien's world. Mm. Um, I believe it was I want to say Glorfindel was the one that in, in the movies it's Arwen who comes and rescues you know rescues Frodo from the yeah. Dark Riders, but in the books I believe it was Glorfindel. Um, mm. And Frodo sees him as he himself is passing into the spirit realm because he, you know, he's been stabbed by the, the, uh, was it the Morgul blade? And, and so he is passing into the spirit world as a wraith. And as he's passing into the spirit world, he sees the spiritual version of Glorfindel. He sees him as he truly is. He's shining, um, you know, with light. And what Gandalf says, I think it's Gandalf says later is that, um, what, what Frodo sees is that these high elves from the West live at once in both worlds that in this, they live in the spiritual world. They can see spiritual beings, but they also live in the physical world as a physical being. And so they are um, in a sense infused with this transcendental light from the, you know, the, the trees of Valinor back in the day before they were destroyed. And, uh, and that light, permeates their spirits and they are the most beautiful of all the elves and the most high and noble of all the elves. 
um, in Frodo's case, as he is, um, in a sense, being wasted away by the ring, the, the beauty of his soul is starting to shine through because he is sacrificing himself. He is showing mercy to Gollum. He is showing these virtues that are, in a sense, uh, eating away at him because, it's, you know, in a Christian worldview, you, you are dying to yourself. You are dying to these um, uh, you know, passions or these desires that you know, work against your soul or you know, your selfishness. Um, and in denying himself of these things and showing mercy and giving of his life, it is, um, you know, he is dying to himself, but his spirit is coming alive and it is shining through his physical form, even as he's wasting away toward the spirit world. And, and then someone like Arwen, someone like Galadriel, it is their spirit that brings true beauty um, because beauty by itself in a material sense is and can be very deceptive. So we see that when Galadriel is tempted by the ring, she is terrible and worshipful, you know, beautiful beyond compare, but that beauty is deceptive beauty because it is not good. Mm. And, and yet when she passes the test, you know, she is, you know, just a simple maiden who is, you know, still beautiful. Um, and that I think is the true beauty as they are, you know, dying to themselves and they are giving of the giving up of themselves for the good of Middle Earth and for the good of their companions. So. Yeah, so that links to the the sort of evil beauty, which mm-hmm. which um, is very prevalent in the Hobbit, mm. because the lure of gold, the yeah. lure of gems, the lure of the Arkenstone, and of course the lure of the Ring itself, which goes over into the Lord of the Rings. This is all. Uh, a, f- a deeply bit- bitter fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is sent mad, or um, it's their undoing as a person if they mm-hmm. succumb to this desire for some something beautiful, um, which is not at heart good. And of course, connects back to uh, Sauron when he was pretending to be um, the friend in Numenor, and he was a beautiful. Mm-hmm. he's outwardly beautiful at that stage when he's in, in bodily form, but he's, you know, rotten inside yeah. and that's, and that sinks a whole Island. So it's pretty bad news. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that there's some very interesting plays on what is, because if you think a number of beautiful artifacts, they all are pretty disastrous, aren't they? In, mm. in Tolkien's world. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And but not not so places because if we so we've talked about human beauty and the beauty of artifacts but um i think of something as a reader that you come away from in lord of the rings in particular is a really overpowering sense of the beauty of place mm-hmm. and how does this fit in with the sense of uh, the transcendent beauty i'm thinking here obviously of rivendell and lorien uh, mm-hmm. in particular yeah, and then what also comes to my mind is, uh, you know, in the Silmarillion, all the things that are described there, and it makes your heart ache a little bit because you want it mm. to be real. You're like, why isn't this world real? And you feel the same way about Middle Earth, that there's all these beautiful things that um, are so like certain places in our world and yet are more. And uh, and I, I believe it's Peter Kreeft that says it's not that his world is like ours is that our world is like his, that he is tapping into some sort of platonic ideal that is um, so much more than what we encounter here. 
um, that he is trying to reflect something that is higher and greater. Um, and it, it makes your heart ache because you want it to be real. So, um, yeah, and I think, you know, all of, for Tolkien, all of creation is connected and all of creation is infused with the glory of the creator. And yet it keeps, you know, falling just a little bit over time, you know, as it wastes away. And even, even at the beginning, it wasn't what it could be because it kept getting poisoned by mm. Melkor and, and so on. And it keeps going from there. Um, yeah. And, uh, and just the different kinds of, of beauty that you see, you know, in Fangorn Forest, uh, it's a different kind of beauty than the, than the Shire. And even Lorien is a different kind of beauty than Rivendell. And, uh, and even, even when the elves leave, Lorien just fades away and passes away, it says. And so, um, yeah, it just leaves your heart aching a little bit, I think. Yeah, I, it was interesting thinking, uh, following this thought of the transcendent beauty and thinking about what the other inklings do with the same idea. Of course, they're all sharing ideas. Mm -hmm. And it brought to mind two things. One is um, the last battle for C.S. Lewis with the idea that you go through the stable door to a sort of even more real world. And Tolkien has a, um, I think it might be on fairy stories where he talks about myth makers make green, really green and, you know, tree, really, really tree-ish. Yes. And it's the intensity of the language that you're looking for in when you start doing it as a myth. And that's what C.S. Lewis attempts to do in that um it's a bit of a problematic book, isn't it? But it's a fascinating <laughs> idea of sort of going further back and into a more of a, to a, a paradise that's sort of even more Narnia than the Narnia you read about in the earlier books. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the other writer in the Inkling Circle who played with these ideas, uh, and first, I think, is Charles Williams in his mm -hmm. novel, um, The Place of the Lion, which is a extraordinary fantasy work in I can't remember exact date, it's about 1936, it's quite early on. Um, but in that, the problem is that the platonic ideals are breaking in to ordinary life. It's like there's a, a rift, very Doctor mm -hmm. Who-ish, there's a rift in yeah. time with all these platonic ideals are leaking through. So you get a lion coming into the world, which sucks in all those things of lionish qualities. And then the butterflies, all the butterflies are being sucked in, like sort of hoovered up. Yeah. That's probably downplaying his very powerful writing there. But um, it's sort of threatening the lesser copies. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you, so the, the job of the heroes in that is to close the gaps, close the rifts. So it's interesting. They're all searching. All these writers are searching for that the, the the ungraspable, the, the even more beautiful, which our imagination can reach for, but we can't actually find. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're all a bit homeless, aren't we? Yeah. That's why we all go back to read the book again. That's right. That's right. And I think what, what Tolkien and Lewis would say is, um, you know, there, there, there's a sense of wonder and desire that is stirred in us that we don't know where where it came from or where what it's pointing to. And, uh, you know, like Lewis would say, it's a memory of a memory that when you're enraptured by this great beauty or this great moment, it makes your heart hurt because you remember something, but you can't quite remember what you're remembering. And, and, and Tolkien does that a lot in Middle Earth where it's so beautiful, so 
moving that it makes your heart ache because you want it to be real. And it, and he would probably say, well, it's reminding you of something more of a world that once was, or, or will yet be. Yeah. So it's not just nostalgia, is it? So, so one reading of Tolkien is that places like the Shire are a longing for a world he saw being dug up for the motorways and mm-hmm. factories, which I think is part, it's there too yeah. as well, but there is a sense of it's never existed either. Um, the idyllic landscape, mm-hmm. this perfect world of the Shire. Um, I, I live near villages that are pretty like that, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure they never had a moment in time where they were always in that sort of bucolic dream you only have to read Thomas Hardy to see how hard it could be out in the countryside yeah, yeah. um so it, it is a I it, that's a different sort of beauty it's a community centered smaller deliberately smaller beauty mm-hmm. and the same goes for the heroic values of Aragorn so you've got ideals of kingship all through stories like Arthurian legends and but you can't locate those in any particular king or time in history it's yeah you're never actually able to find them though you see reflections of them in some codes of behavior or the occasional hero it's like it's uh, extracted and distilled from Mm. different characters we've seen in history and different people we've seen in history different legends we've heard and it's like it's all being all the good things are being extracted and then distilled into a, a fictional character and yeah that's interesting so Lisa, I mean, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is that I think that this sense of beauty is absolutely key to the success of Lord of the Rings. And the reason why it really gets its hooks into our souls as people is because it is offering this ideal of a place that we can feel is... <sighs> We all just want to walk, I'm mixing my metaphors now, but we all, we all want to walk through the wardrobe just to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we go back to read it again. But when I look at other sort of more recent fantasy series, I don't see people writing with the same sense of that there is this, um, that these ideals are, are graspable or in 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 their work. So I, I was wondering if that's because we're all too cynical now mm-hmm. uh, and we go for more of a Game of Thrones bloodbath approach <laughs> or I know Star, Star Wars has a sense of purity in, in the um, the force, of course, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's always sort of tippling over to the dark side, which I suppose you get that in Tolkien too. It's just really interesting to know whether, whether anyone else can do this. Can anybody mm-hmm. else capture this real sense of the transcendental beauty? You were were saying to me before we started talking that you're not so well-versed in contemporary fantasy, but has anything caught your eye? Any any attempts in this direction? Well, what what comes to mind is, well, I kind of gave up on modern fiction because I I, I would go to the bestseller rack and I'd pick up a book and, you know, read it and just be like, why is this a bestseller? This is written terribly. And, And I just started going back to the classics. Because it seemed like the classics, you know, Count of Monte Cristo, you've got Jane Austen, you have, um, you know, just those sorts of classics that they're just written to really encapsulate human life in in one small aspect of time. And they, the ones that are successful are successful because they were excellent and they were true to reality. 
Um, and I think what a lot of what's missing in in you know the current days is yes, there is a cynicism, and yes, there's a loss of uh, of beauty in everyday life. That you know we're all uh, very focused on technology and our technical toys, and that's that's you know something that Tolkien said in one of his letters that you know we're so focused on on all of that that we have forgotten about. Um, you know, beauty and the the true things about human life. And I think the successful authors are the ones that really try to capture, you know, the the reality of human life, but also try to nourish the imagination with certain goodnesses that are in life. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, from my perspective, it doesn't even have to be Christian. You know, it can be something that encapsulates the truth, you know, encapsulates the truths of human life in a way that encourages the spirit and uplifts the spirit. And I think what we lose is this uh, desire for excellence. And I think with the ability to you know, publish online so easily on blogs and, um, you know, it is harder to publish in an actual publisher, like you have to have an agent nowadays, but it's so much easier to get your stuff out there that I think the market is so flooded in one sense that you can't actually find the ones that are truly excellent because they're out there, but there's just so much out there that's in the way. Or things that are so well done in a, um, let's say, a Game of Thrones way, where it's it's very well written, it's very well shot, um, it's very well acted, but it's it's so carnal. You know, there's there's such a like a, a lust for blood. There's such a um, you know a, a relational lust. You know, it's all very carnal in that human sense, even though it's crafted beautifully. So we need to somehow make a beautiful craft with the beauties of human experience and that um, the contrast, I mean, there, there's always going to be darkness. There's always going to be evil. Um, but what about the goodness and the beauty? And Tolkien's approach of beauty is he's able to extract the goodness and the truth from creation and human experience and communicate it. But he communicates it through beauty, the beauty of a face, the beauty of a story, the beauty of a, of a relationship, the beauty of an event. And, you know, we see at the end of Frodo's story, he's broken. You know, he, he loses everything, basically. Um, he's, he's, he calls him a drug addict at the end because he's so addicted to the ring that he could never give it up if he wanted to. And he has a very real sense of PTSD from this whole experience. But because of his mercy, the world is saved. But he himself is sacrificed and Tolkien draws that out in a way that is moving and he still offers hope and consolation because he felt like there was hope and consolation to be found. And so he doesn't give him quite the, the perfect ending one would see in a Disney movie perhaps, but he gives him the realistic hope that is offered, I believe to human beings and says, you know, there is, consolation even for this great wound that might not be healed and i think that that's how he brings excellence and so modern writers can capture that but it has to be an excellence of craft combined with seeing the world clearly in a way that nourishes the imagination i think that's how it can be done and probably is done i just haven't read those books yet <laughs> <laughs> well as, as a as a writer um I've not ever achieved that. I, you know, it's what I would aspire to achieve, but uh, I'm still learning. 
I'm still trying to work out how to do that in a way that doesn't come across as either pastiche or cheesy or unearned. Mm. And I think the thing in Lord of the Rings is that the beauty is earned. It's very dark Mm -hmm. and the darkness is very, very dark. And obviously Tolkien's own experience of the wars were very, very dark, which makes the beauty shine out all the more strongly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's something to aspire to. Uh, So that's, that's, that's the, that's the mission. That's the challenge. Mm -hmm. So at the end of our podcast, uh, Lisa, we always have a little section where we decide where is the best in whatever fantasy world we want to choose to go for something. So in the past, we've done things like where's the best um, tavern to go to or the best um, where to go into space we did recently. Mm -hmm. So in honor of your theme, I'd like to ask you where you think is the best place to go to see and experience transcendent transcendent beauty. Mm. Where would you pick if you were walking through into a book world? Where do you want to end up? Wow. Honestly, in the books that I, I read a lot of Westerns when I was a kid. <laughs> and, and I have to say, I was so enraptured by, you know, places like, you know, the, the mountains and, you know, the Grand Canyon, you know, places that are just so wilderness oriented, that there's such a raw beauty in, in that kind of world. And it makes you long for it, even if you haven't been there yourself. And I, I have not read enough fantasy. I've only read a handful of fantasy books and I, I did not find that transcendental beauty in those books. Um, but I think for those that have really tapped into that beauty, you can find it, you know, whether it's in these, you know, classic books, you know, even in Jane Austen, you see this very, you know, country life that, um, you know, it feels very quintessential. It's something like, you know, from Beauty and the Beast, where you just want to go out into this, um, you know, almost this wilderness or this countryside and just get that, that raw, natural beauty. But then there's also things like in Doctor Who, where you've got, you know, was it stingrays like flying through the air? And it just, there's something beautiful about those other worlds, those alien worlds that are really captured, you know, through CGI. And, uh, and of course, Avatar, um, that was all about the beauty of that world that was under threat. Um, You know, that really they use the three, the 3G, the 3D, sorry, the 3D Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to great effect there, didn't they? What about, I'm allowed, I'm going to allow you Tolkien though. So in Tolkien's (laughs) world, which, which of his very beautiful places would you pick to go and be a tourist? I think Rivendell. I just have such a love for the mountains and, and the way that, all these uh, structures are built into the natural world. You know, you imagine Rivendell as, uh, you know, just this beautiful craftsmanship, just in harmony with nature. And then these, you know, cascading mountains. I would just love to live there. That is probably the place I want to live. And then of course there's Valinor where it just feels so mysterious because it's, it's somewhere you could never go and somewhere a human could never set foot. I would just love to see the, you know, the, those streets with gems just, cast all over you know that the shore and I don't know just it's just mind-bogglingly beautiful in my mind so I think I've always wanted to go to um Lorien mm-hmm. or Lothlorien because that's the place that captured me as a child mm-hmm. I mean I did uh, I think Rivendell too but I felt that particularly the Fellowship of the Ring builds to Lorien really 
it, it yeah. comes at such a moment of reprieve after so much darkness that it felt um and in, i'm also i love trees so i think that's part of it too well florian was very moving and so yeah i can i can certainly agree with that that there was some a, a sense of uh you know it was moving it was awe-inspiring and then it also gave a sense of rest which is so often neglected i think in uh, you know, it, whether it's in you know, conversation or theology or whatever, you know, it, novels, just this idea of rest. Tolkien always puts a space of rest um, in order to prepare for the next part of the journey. And I think that is mm. so important to the nourishment of the soul. And I just, it also just came to me that the other place um, that I've always associated with this is the, the sea at the end of the Dawn Treader where, it, where the sea turns sweet Mm. and um lucy's looking over the side of the ship and she sees the mer girl below and the whole sort of parallel universe of the the mer people having their own worlds that they don't they just sail over they never encounter but he's got a sense of more mm. and i remember going to um zanzibar in have you, i don't know if you've ever been to zanzibar it's uh, on the uh, west coast of no east coast of africa um and the seas there are turquoise and I thought my goodness this is exactly like uh so then so it's not sweet don't try drinking it, <laughs> drink it. <laughs> so sometimes you get these little glimpses of like a coral reef off Zanzibar and you think yes this is I remember reading as a child that book and it opens that door into your transcendent beauty and um, that sense of awe about the amazing creation that we have been entrusted and not doing a very good job of looking after. Mm. Yeah, there's a so. sense of stewardship of of beauty, and and then even imagination. Like we've, I think we've, as a culture, we've let our imagination rot. I think. Okay, so let's try and turn it around. So, this is what, <laughs> so anyone listening to this, let's let's all of us try and turn it around. Let's be better stewards of creation, and also better writers when it comes to this aspect thank you so much lisa um, for spending time with us it's been a real joy to meet you and thank you for also exploring this idea in your work it's um great to see that element which i think we all sense but it's really good that someone actually just pushes it forward and says look this is how it works this is the 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 power behind something we're also affected by so thank you so much oh yes thank you so much for having me this is wonderful Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.